Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from TSPN, that's the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters, a.k.a. The Ant Hill. Today is Monday, the 30th of May, 2012, and this is episode 911 of the Survival Podcast. I'm sure there's a conspiracy theorist or two that thinks that means something. It doesn't. It's just if you do 910 shows, the next one is 911. Which brings me up to something I want to make sure I remind people about. We are on our way to episode 1000. 1000 is going to be a landmark anniversary episode. And we are going to celebrate that by celebrating the audience, not the show. And that means that I need you guys to pick up your phones and call in and tell everybody else what prepping the Survival Podcast, the Survival Podcast community, the forum, uh, just being awake. It doesn't have to be directly attributed to the show. You're part of the community. What has being part of the community done for you? What changes have you made in your life? How is your life better? Uh, the number to call for that is not the think line. Please don't call the think line with your testimonials. They could get lost that way. I do not 100% screen the think line. Um, once I get, you know, enough calls, uh, and, and that some of them atrophy off and they, they just don't get screened. I try to screen most of them, but not all of them. So I might miss it. I have a number just for episode 1000. It is 866-691-5353. Please don't feel that your story's not compelling enough. I promise you it's probably more compelling than you realize. Please don't think because you called in for the one-year anniversary show or the, the episode 550 where we did this before that you, you need to leave room for other people. Trust me, there is no capacity issue. If this show runs two and a half hours, it runs two and a half hours. If people take four or five listens before they get through it, fine. The message here for everybody out there that comes to TSP and finds one of these episodes like this is you are not alone. And the more people that spread that message, the stronger that message becomes. On the message, remember, tomorrow we're releasing Dean Brock's If I Wanted to Save America video compilation. I will be putting out information to share that. I want it shared like crazy. Um, again, I think something really special happened that day. Um, it felt transfer transformational to me when I, was, when I was doing that. I have to tell you, I didn't know what I was going to say when I started out. I really didn't. I didn't plan it. All I did was sit around with that if I wanted America to fail video in my head for a week and thinking, I can't put that on the air until I have something positive to play after it. And that was the result. And I think that what Dean did made it even more powerful. Um, and I, I think that we can really do a lot with it to win people over to a preparedness mindset. So please be ready tomorrow. Let's spread that one like crazy. I think it's universal. I think it's something you can share with every member of your family, all your friends, without looking like you're some kind of survivalist crazy. You know, because it's not anything about that now, is it? All right, guys, before we get into today's show, which is going to be cool, I've got a guy I'm about to bring on the air with us named Ben Branham, and he is an awesome guy. 
He, uh, he is big into IDPA uh, shooting, competition shooting. If you don't know what that is, don't worry. It's the first question I'm going to ask him so he can tell you because he's been doing it so he can tell you better than I can. And he's going to tell you why you might want to get out and do some IDPA shooting yourself, even if you're not really the competitive type or you don't think you're the, the, you know, the tactical type. I think that this sounds like a lot of fun and a lot of ways that people, a great way for a lot of people to meet each other, to learn a great bunch of stuff. But I'll let him explain that to you. I'll have him on in just a moment before we bring him on. Let's go take care of our sponsors they do a lot to help take care of you by supporting the show sponsor of the day number one today is ready-made resources what more can you ask for from a company than for them to say this is our name and then the name of their company is what they do and then they actually do it and what they do is they provide all the resources you need ready-made ready to go go to their website point click and buy and ship to your house with great pricing and great service and i do mean all the resources tactical practical and everything in between check them out today readymaderesources.com next up today bulk ammo um as i'm fond of saying your gun without a uh without ammo sorry about the siren if you heard it in the background there guys uh your gun without ammo It is nothing but a club, a really expensive club. And when I actually mentioned that to Ben, you'll hear later on today, he pointed out with some of the new guns, it might not even be very good as a club because they're too light now. So you want your gun uh, to be able to protect you or put food on the table or do whatever you need that gun to do. You need ammo to go with it. And you need training. And if you're going to train, you need to train often because if you train once a year, it ain't going to cut it. That's kind of what today's show's all about. And uh, I'll tell you what, if you're going to buy ammo, it gets more and more expensive. I don't know if you've been paying attention to the price. So you want to buy it in bulk, and you want to get you want to pay the best price for it. And when you do that, you also don't want to let you like the price because you paid less for it, make it take longer to get to you. You want good, quick service, and you want to be taken care of, and you want to be appreciated for your business, and you still want a great price, and you want to buy a bunch of ammo. Well, I'll tell you where you can do that: bulkammo.com. Uh, I, I, I'm fond of saying, you know, uh, of some companies like Jeff the Berkey guy, the you know, sponsor, other sponsor, zero complaints. I have to tell you, I've had no complaints about bulk ammo either. Uh, I had one because they give away some. They were giving away ammo cans to the MSB for a while, and they ran out of ammo cans, and somebody was upset because they couldn't get their ammo can. Well, they they didn't have any; they were out of stock. So I mean, that that's it. And and they've been a sponsor now, going in their second year, zero complaints. That's a tough industry to make everybody happy in, folks. So check them out today, bulk ammo. Dot com. Uh, next up, remember to connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. I do have a new YouTube video series out. There's already four videos in it. It's on permaculture. And I'm kind of going through almost like a miniature PDC explaining the entire concept. I put out a video yesterday that was on understanding permaculture as a system of design versus a, a list of techniques. And I think it was very uh, eye-opening for a lot of people. So check that one out. Uh, and it, it, it is in a playlist as well, so you can watch straight from the beginning all the way through. And I'll keep adding videos to it. Uh, you can just go to my channel and see in the video playlist if you want to do it that way. And I'll put a link uh, to all four videos thus far in today's show notes. Uh, with that, I do have the housekeeping wrapped up. And I want to introduce our guest at this time. Again, his name is Ben Branham. He's been around a bit. He's done 10 years in the uh, Marine Corps Reserves. He also did two years on active duty as part of an anti-terror unit uh, in California and as part of uh, the invasion force in Iraq. He's been through two different police academies. He has a law enforcement degree. He also worked for an armored car company. In 2008, he went back to Iraq as a private security contractor for a couple different companies. And he's been shooting IDPA-style competitions for almost 10 years now, and he loves it. 
He's also been listening to the show for a long time, three years. He started a garden even. So he is not just somebody with a lot of knowledge. He's also a, a fine member of the Survival Podcast community. And I am really happy to have him here with us today. Hey, Ben, welcome to the Survival Podcast, man. Hey, Jack. It's great to be here. I'm 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 just greatly honored to be able to speak to you and your listeners. It's really I'm almost nervous talking to all you guys because I admire you all so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. Don't be nervous, and we're we're honored to have you here. Your uh, your resume that I kind of read off right before introducing you is uh, tells us you've been through things that probably make you more nervous than talking to me. That's for sure. <laughs> but but you're here to talk to us today specifically about IBPA competition shooting, and I think a lot of people are familiar with it, but a lot of people have probably just heard about it and they really don't know what it is. So what is IDPA? Well, IDPA stands for International Defensive Pistol Association. And it was set up as a competition to kind of go more towards real life scenarios where other competitions were just fun, run and gun. You run around and shoot a lot, but you didn't have to use cover. You didn't have to reload. You could have $5,000 race guns. So it kind of really didn't, people felt that it didn't help them a lot. And so IDPA is more realistic scenarios. You're only going to shoot 10 or 15 rounds per stage. You have to use cover. You have to reload everybody's limited to the gear they can use. It's all carry gear, so you can't bring a tricked-out holster. It has to be something that actually would conceal that you'd use every day. So it's kind of helpful on that aspect. Um, my my thing has always been with any of these events is they I, I believe that they can help in a lot of ways like muscle memory and, and, and developing the, the draw and the mentality and the combat mentality, but... It's also, to me, not realistic. In, in some ways, you know, if you're not really heavy into, uh, into the protective gear, airsoft can be kind of, in some ways, more realistic because it freaking hurts, right? And <laughs> yeah. When somebody's shooting back at you, that's, that's real, realistic. So in what ways can IDPA really actually help you know, in, in, in being prepared for like a civil breakdown or a real combat scenario? And are there any ways that it can actually be harmful? Uh, the first way it's useful is that it's all about gun handling skills. We never get enough. Dry practice, live fire, no matter how many classes you go to, you can never get enough. And so when you go to a match, you're going to shoot 100 rounds, and there, none of them are going to be standing just shooting a target. You're always going to be moving. There's moving targets. There's reactive targets. You always have to start with your pistol holstered, so you're going to get one draw at least, and generally there's a couple reloads in there on and off through the stages. So it's really about gun handling skills. And then you get to that level where in a real life scenario, you're not thinking about find my sights, press the trigger, watch the bad guy go down. You're doing all sorts of other things like running, worrying about the guys around you, trying to duck behind something and not get hit. And that's where I think IDPA really comes into it. Because when you shoot a stage, you have to remember which order I'm moving in, where I have to reload, what I actually have to do to shoot the stage and to make my scores. So I don't really have time to think, okay, draw, find my sights, press the trigger twice, find the next target. All you can think of is the buzzer goes and it's you're on. So then you have to know, like one of our stages that I did about two months ago was a rifle competition set up as IDPA. And it was a lot of fun, but it was just absolutely crazy. You start with your rifle loaded down and it was shoot. Three targets from one side of the barricade, three targets from the other side of the barricade. Your rifle goes down. You draw your pistol. You have to move to another target, shoot, move to another spot, shoot three on the left and three on the right. And then your 
pistol is empty. You have to drop your pistol, grab a magazine off the ground, reload your rifle, and engage three more targets in the right order. So you're really thinking, what do I have to do to shoot this stage instead of actually the shooting stuff? So it really makes you become second nature on the shooting. And then in defensive stuff, that's really what you want. You want to be able to shoot as second nature and you be able to think about the other things, the tactics you're doing, the people around you, what's going on. Is there more bad guys? Can I get out of here? You don't want to have to put all your energy like a, a zero competition at a thousand yards at Camp Perry where nothing else matters but that one shot. You'll have way too many things else on your mind. Well, that makes perfect sense, and it's very, very, in a way, military, because there's a lot of military training that's that way. It's not that you're necessarily doing the exact same thing. You're having to do the things you will have to do under in a combat scenario with a lot of distraction. Um, like when I went to combat lifesaver training, the, you, know, the, you, you can't actually have mortars landing on your head while you're trying to keep a guy from dying, but they'll have a guy sitting there screaming at you, telling you you're doing it wrong, you're killing him, uh, yelling, and then they've got a guy grading you on the other side of it, and they're simulating the pressure, but the reality is they're making you do what you're supposed to do without being able to actually think about doing it. And it's it's kind of the same thing you're saying there. Yeah, just to get that. So the gunshots are all all just second nature. And that's, I mean, when you go to the range and you start shooting, you start figuring that out, that's really where you want to be. And you know you're getting good is the front sight and pressing the trigger is all second nature. I don't really have to think about that. My subconscious does it for me. And I can think about the next target, the next bad guy getting people out of the way or people coming up behind me or, you know, everything else you have to do. Cause it's just in real combat, there's just, it's never just you and the bad guy. There's about a hundred thousand distractions and you're trying to keep track of 50, 60 different things at one time while you're actually shooting at somebody. Including things like not being mistaken for part of the problem and, and shot by another well-meaning person. Oh yeah. And here in the real world, I say the real world cause all my combat experience was in Iraq but here in the real world, yeah, that's a huge thought of mine. And that's one of the reasons I don't I, – I carry a gun. I have my CHL, but I won't get involved a lot because I'm afraid somebody else with a CHL is going to shoot me by mistake if I get involved. So it's really – you know, and that's – I mean, that's a mind game that self-defense instructors play with each other all the time. How do we not get shot in the middle of it by another good guy? Yeah. Yeah, I know Frank Sharp says like as soon as the as soon as the the, the threat is handled, start saying things like you know somebody call nine one one. Is everybody okay? Uh, things like that because the bad guy generally doesn't tell you to call nine one one. And but you still, I mean, you're talking about split second decisions here. Gunshots ring out. Another person's arm. They see a guy with a gun shooting. Um, it's it's you know a, a good reason to move and take cover, not just so the bad guy doesn't shoot you, but so you have time to uh, to, to identify yourself to other well-meaning surrounding people. And you know, I, I think that it, it can be uh, it, it probably is the case that what, what you do with IDPA would be helpful. Now, you said you've actually experienced combat. You've been over in overseas theater with combat. And friendly fire can happen, and does happen, but it's nowhere near the risk because you've got professionals engaged in professional engagement, but you still got somebody shooting back at you. So you were doing IDPA before you went over, so was it helpful to you? Was it beneficial to you? How did the skills translate in a you know, real scenario? For me, it became, I, we had one real scenario that I was the only guy that could fit down the hole and would 
could climb down into this hole. So they had it handed me a bread, a nine millimeter, a flashlight in my mouth and a extra magazine in my pocket. And I climb into this access tube looking for bad guys and it's pitch black down there, but it was just exactly like a night shoot we had set up for an IDPA match. As soon as I dropped in that hole and started moving, I felt like I was on an IDPA range, just going down this tunnel looking for bad guys. So it gave me huge confidence. I knew that I could shoot anything I needed to and at what distance I could engage one handed with the flashlight without an issue. And just, it was this huge confidence boost that other guys around me didn't have. They weren't sure of themselves and their weapon and how fast they could actually hit and at to what distances they could make hits without actually sitting there and doing the whole seven fundamentals of marksmanship, getting their position right and breathing. So it really helped me a lot just going in there. I didn't, I was nervous because it was combat, but everything on, I did on IDPA was such a help over there. And it just, it made me that much better. And I got to teach all my guys that I was a corporal at, a to- at the time in the Marine Corps. So I, I started teaching them all this stuff when we first got over there and it boosted their morale up and made us just a better unit. It really, uh, it just, it's kind of hard to explain, but it was, it, it was just, when I dropped into that hole, it was exactly like being on the IDPA range. It was no big, it was, I was walking down this tall, tunnel in the dark and it was just like being home at the range with a flashlight going through the barricades looking for t- paper targets. So it really yeah. confidence and uh, yeah, it got rid of that. I think it got rid of a lot of the fear level because once you've done it before, you're like, well, I've done this before. It's not that big a deal. Kind of like skydiving yeah. or yeah, any of that. Once you do it once, the second time you're kind of like, well, yeah, I've done this before. I, I remember definitely like the first the first couple jumps I had in the military was like a really big deal. And then it's like we're doing this again. <laughs> you know? This is I'm going to have to carry all my crap off the drop zone and under probably going to drop me in mud again. And, <laughs> and but the first couple of times you could care less. You just want to do it because it's so amazing, you know. Uh, so I think anything and, I it, you know, there's a point where you watch professional operators when you get some of these films from combat and they look so cool and collected. And the reality is anytime you're being shot at, you're not exactly cool and collected, but they, they manage to pull it off. And I think it is that repetition. I, now, I'm going to guess, because I've never actually done IDPA myself, but that it's highly likely that if you went to 10 events, the scenarios you're going to be putting in those 10 events are completely different from each other. So you get a lot of exposure to these different things. Yeah. Every, uh, like my local club does six stages, every match. And really they do three to six or eight, depending on how big your matches is matches are, I can't even speak, but they, uh, every scenario will be different and they'll give you the scenario. Like, uh, you were walking home with your wife and these three muggers jump you. And so then you have something to sim- simulate. You have to like put your arm around one of the targets standing there, that that's my wife. And then the, the buzzer goes and you have to start from there. And so it gives you a lot of stuff about that too. I mean, how many of us practice drawing when you're holding your wife or your significant other's hand? It changes all these things. Yeah. I mean, the other thing I'm thinking of is, you know, I feel really lucky now with where I live. If I want to move and shoot, no problem. If I want to set up my own courses, no problem. I can do whatever I want now on my property because I live in a place where I can do that. But for years living down in uh, in Arlington area, you, you don't go, you know, 
even with airsoft, I had the police show up one time because a neighbor was an idiot, you know. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, you, you can't do that. And then you go to a range and basically, you know, we tell people don't just practice slow fires, standing still. Square. But that's how a lot of ranges, You that's the only thing you are allowed to do. So this actually gets people into an environment where they can practice in a real world scenario right yeah and it's when you draw the gun it's as fast as you can possibly go you can run the gun as fast as it'll go like it's a full auto weapon a lot of the stages will have you moving they will tell you here you have to move towards these targets while you're engaging them or you're retreating here shoot the targets while you're retreating which i think is one of the best skills you could ever try to learn is retreat and fire at the same time but uh so you keep going with all these different and every scenario is different and then it's somebody else's mind is coming up with all these crazy scenarios you would have never thought of it uh one of them i went to they thought about hey what happens if the bad guy sprays you with pepper spray first and then wants to fight hmm. well you can't really simulate that but it was cool that they made you put on a, a like a dust mask that was painted over so it was hard to breathe and then put on uh, goggles that had spray paint on them like swimming oh, goggles wow. so it was hard to breathe and you couldn't see hardly anything, and then you had to run the stage like that. And it, you learn a lot real fast. Like, you're never going to see that front sight when your vision's impaired. You're going to have to just point shoot it. So if you stand there trying in a real-world scenario, if you get sprayed by pepper spray, and you stand there and you're trying, oh, I trained myself to find that front sight, find that front sight, you're looking through that front, looking for that front sight with tears in your eyes, and you're just never going to find it. And by then, the bad guy is going to kill you. But if you already shot it, like on an IDPA thing, oh, I know if my vision's impaired, forget the front sight, point it at the bad guy, and press the trigger. Sure. So it's kind of cool sure. you get all these scenarios that somebody else's mind comes up with and thinks of and things that you would have never thought of, and then you learn stuff like that real fast. Well, and then the realism there is that whatever situation you ever end up in, in a in a real-world shooting scenario, should you end up there, will have come from somebody else's mind. Because the armed citizen that's responsible doesn't go out and start the engagement in the first place. So it's always going to, in the real world, come from somebody else. So you always need to be prepared to adapt. And I, I guess I, I never really understood how the scenarios were always different. So I've seen other events where basically the stages are always the same, where people can basically master the stages. And what you're telling me is with IDPA, that is not the case because it's going to be different each time we run a, run a course. Yeah, it's rare. I shoot this for the same club out here called Texas Tactical. Great guy that runs the club, and he's, uh, I don't know what he call him. He's a master-level course designer, and he does a lot of the national events. But even though it, most of them come out of his mind, I don't think I've seen the same one twice more than once. And I shoot IDPA like once a month for the last three years down here. And you just keep coming up with different things and nothing ever stays the same. And then if you go to different clubs, they all have access to different kind of targets. Some guys have flip up targets. Some guys have swingers. The barricades all, all look different because it's kind of whatever they can piece together to be a wall. So it's all it all comes different with the size of the range too matters a lot. If they have a little tiny skinny range. Those are kind of fun because normally you have to run forward the whole time and engage a bunch of targets, and that one's just a lot of fun to be running through hallways just shooting bad guys as fast as you can. So some of it's just a lot of fun. And then how fast can you run and actually make a hit at three yards or seven yards going through your house if you're trying to go from one side of your house to get your to your family members on the other? 
So you how, how do we manage safety in these these scenarios? Because we do have people moving around with guns, and I, I mean, there's an element of danger to to many things, but. Uh, specifically, how do we manage safety from a standpoint of bystanders and things like that as well? Uh, that's a good question. I should have, I should have came up with that. You, every range you go to, if you're a new shooter, they'll have a new shooter's brief, and they'll explain the whole thing to you and the safety rules. And then even if you're not a new shooter, there's always a shooter's meeting, and we always go over the safety rules. And, of course, it's always the four hand, gun handling safety rules. Keep your finger off the trigger. Don't point the muzzle at anything you don't intend to shoot. They know your target and what's beyond and treat every gun as if it was loaded. But they manage a lot of the safety by it's a cold range generally, which means everybody's got a holstered weapon. You can't touch your weapon unless you're on the shooting line and the weapon's empty all the time. When you go up to shoot, they utilize what they call a 180. Your muzzle can never go past 180 degrees downrange. And if you do a safety violation, you're just disqualified. They, mm. they have no... There's no leeway, really. If you point your gun up range, they'll call halt to the whole match. They'll have you unload your weapon and say, uh, yeah, go put your weapon in your car. You're done for the day. And they're yeah, that's nice. that's the right place for a zero-tolerance policy, too, in, in, in my opinion. They're pretty they're pretty totalitarian about it, which is good. And uh, yeah. I've been to – I'm trying to – I have no idea. Probably over 100 matches. And the one guy I've seen that actually shot himself – was he was trying to go out of the holster too fast and he shot himself in the knee. Yeah. I've never seen anybody else hurt and he was it was a dumb dumb inch it was I called it a dumb dumb wound. It went around his kneecap. He was really lucky. Oh, like wow. no blood, no no nothing. And it was nice to have I was the only one that had a first aid kit and a blowout kit with me, so that was nice. But uh yeah, no big deal. He went to the hospital. Two weeks later he's back on the range shooting. But uh hopefully a little wiser. Yeah, hopefully a little safer. But I've seen some guys disqualified. They'll point their rifle up range or their handgun up range. And you always, each squad has a safety officer, and it's his job to run the range. And then he also, it's not like they just blow the whistle and you go run down range by yourself. The safety officer actually has to go with you and okay. standing there if you do something stupid. Okay, so you've got somebody that's, one, looking for the violation, and two, there to mitigate the violation. Yeah, well. and he's and it's kind of part of your shooter's brief is that... That safety officer's rule is law there. If he says you pointed up range and you're disqualified, that's it. You're going home. Yeah. And the, so he's there to remind you of all the safety rules, too. And you'd be surprised if people haven't been to an actual competition or an actual class. We make, especially hunters, I, some of them, I don't want to say all of them, but a couple of them. I, I moved to Texas from California, and I ran into all these hunters, and it was great. I started learning how to hunt. But they're some of the most unsafe people. They're like, don't worry, the gun's not loaded, and he's looking down the barrel. I'm like, stop that. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I don't know if it's a cultural thing either because, like, where I grew up in Pennsylvania, especially, like, with deer hunting and all, um, you, you hunted with other people. It was, a, it was a, almost a Nazi level uh, of safety, and there was a much more casual approach to it when I moved to the South, and it did make me feel uncomfortable at times, Uh you know, and, you know, even with, you know, actions open and things like that, there's just, you know, if you make a habit of doing something stupid just because the the weapon's in a, let's call it a safe mode, then you're also likely to end up doing that stupid thing when it's not. Yeah, I agree. And that's kind of why I like going to the competitions, too, because they will catch you doing stupid things. And they will catch you, like most of us, when we reload a handgun, you pull it into yourself and you'll put it sideways across your body. 
Yeah. Well, if you don't have somebody watching exactly where your muzzle is going, I mean, do you really, in a real-world scenario, even if you're reloading, you probably don't want to muzzle your wife if she's standing next to you. Sure. So they will. They so you have that instructor, and he's standing there, and they, you have to take a safety class to become a safety officer. And so he's standing there, and he'll tell you, "Hey, your muzzle's going too far downrange." And he kind of they give you one warning, and they call it a muzzle command, and you'll just hear him yell "muzzle." If you're going, starting to point your weapon up range, you have to turn yeah. around, and point it straight downrange. And if you don't, he'll just disqualify you. And he's supposed to yell that when you start to get close. Okay. And some of the scenarios get really hard set up to where it's. You have to take steps and move, or you will point your muzzle up range when you start reloading. So it's kind of cool yeah. to have that guy. And then the other thing I see all the time with newer shooters or people that haven't been in actual training courses is they'll use two hands to holster their weapon, and they'll put their one hand on the front of the holster, their off-shooting hand, and then they'll try to use that to open the holster or hold the holster at the right angle to stick their gun in there. And yeah. nine times out of ten, they're muzzling their hand. And something like that, you don't realize it unless somebody points it out to you because that's just the way you've always done it. Sure. So you get you get that safety officer standing there saying, hey, you know, you're kind of muzzling your hand there. You need to stop doing that. So kind yeah, of a little thing. Yeah, up injury. <laughs> yeah. We, and we pick up, all of us who have been shooting for a long time, we pick up stupid habits. We really do. So you need to, if you have an instructor or a safety officer sitting there and watching you on the safety thing, it'll really make you a better shooter and a safer shooter to go to these ITP, IDPA matches. Now, to the person that's on the outside listening to all this, it can almost sound like an elite level of training or something like that. So the person that's never been to a match before, never seen a match before, they're a new shooter, they've basically learned basic gun safety and basic gun handling. Maybe they've even taken a, you know, a ta- one or two tactical courses. But when they look at something like this, how how is it for the new person? Is it a very welcoming environment, people willing, you know, or is it, or is it that kind of elitist, you know, who's the best type scenario, or is it a blend? I'm so glad you asked that question because I, I want to tell all you, you and all your listeners, if you haven't shot one, you need to go. It's an amazing, fun time. There is shooters, even in local clubs, you'll find the shooter that's the master class shooter that is shooting the world championships all the way down to that guy that's just stepped on the range. And really, IDPA is for anybody that can draw and fire your weapon safely. If you can draw your gun out of your holster and fire it at a target without shooting yourself, you're ready for IDPA. <laughs> it's really that simple. And when you get there, it's really the you'll find the greatest people in the world there, kind of like your listeners. They're all there to help each other. There's really not a lot of machismo, which is really weird for a, the gun community when you go out there. But you'll find that that master level shooter that's competing against you, he'll come down and say, hey, man, if you do this, you can shoot that stage faster. And even though he just made it so you might be able to beat him, he'll still tell you how to do it. If your gun goes down or you break a holster, there's somebody that will loan you something. I've loaned holsters to guys that I don't know. I'm like, oh, you got a Glock? You need a holster? Here, I got my extra one, and I'll toss him a, a holster for the day. And guys have loaned me stuff like spare magazines. Or one time I ran out of ammo. I needed like five rounds to finish the stage, and I was competing with another guy, and we were like neck and neck. And he, you know, if I didn't have those five rounds, there's no way I could ever stay in the competition. He just dumps five rounds out of his bag and hands them to me. Hmm. So it's really, it's this really great environment and everybody wants to help each other be better shooters. They want you to be a better competitor. And the people that I've met there are amazing. There's, there's a group of the old guys that kind of get together. We call them the old farts of the group and they always kind of shoot together. 
Most of them are Vietnam vets and older, and they're just amazing guys, and they'll have a great time. If you go shoot with them, they'll tell you, well, the first stage will give you a pass, but the second one, we're going to make fun of you. So, <laughs> so if you do something dumb, just know that we're all going to point and laugh. Uh, and it's kind of that environment where everybody just has a good time, and you all laugh at each other's mistakes, and you, you, you just stand there and you talk the whole time about shooting, shooting sports, guns, gears, self-defense. There's a bunch of survival guys that will show up that are right in your niche. And it just I – I don't think I've met a better group of people than going to IDPA matches. What's the most common guns that you see there? Because, like you've already mentioned, we can't have these uh, – you know, in some of the competitions, these guys have these race up, slicked up, you know, 1911 frames that are $10,000 worth of gun. So what are most people bringing? Are they bringing the guns they carry every day? And what, you know, and I'm sure after you've shot a few matches, you start to learn some things about reliability and shootability and ergonomics. So what would you say is the dominant stuff that you see? Yeah, it's really the most po- popular police guns, as you'll see out there. Um, everybody for years was running Glocks, and then now there's a lot of Smith & Wesson M&Ps out there. There's a lot of XDs. I'm starting to see some Rugers again. Uh, it's just a lot of anything that you would carry for defense or that you see a police officer carry is going to be the most common. I'd say like most common common is probably a Glock because everybody knows a Glock. Everybody buys a Glock. Everybody has a Glock. I mean, even if you don't, even if you're not a Glock shooter, you generally have a Glock in your cabinet. Mm-hmm. And those those put you in a certain category, and everybody likes to shoot them. And then you, it's hard to wear out a Glock. So you'll see a lot of the top level shooters. They they'll shoot when you got a guy that's shooting ten thousand rounds a year through his gun. Mm-hmm. He wants the gun that's not going to break. So then you start asking him what he's shooting and why. And a lot of them you get the stupid answer like, "Well, I really like this other gun, but it kept breaking on me every three thousand rounds." <laughs> but I got this Glock now, and I've shot 10,000 rounds through it, and it still keeps working. So it's kind of the other thing. And as you get going with gear and stuff, you can start out with the cheap $20 Phobos holster, and the, and you can put magazines in your pocket and start running that way. And even if you don't have a, a, a holster, if you go and you have a common gun, somebody will loan you one. If you have a like a baby Desert Eagle or something that's kind of off the wall that nobody has ever seen or every nobody has ever owned, you're going to have problems finding a holster for it. But if you have a Glock or a Smith & Wesson or an XD, those are really the biggest ones. If you have a 1911, they'll loan you something. Are there a lot of guys that shoot the 1911 frame, or is that kind of waned? Oh, yeah. they shoot. There's a lot of shooters with the 1911. I'd say the 1911 and the Glock are probably the most common. And really, there's four categories for IDPA, so you're shooting against somebody that's shooting the same style gun as you are. Oh, okay. So a 1911 shooter is shooting, uh, they call it custom defensive pistol. It has to be a 45, and you can only put seven rounds in the magazine. And so you can run a Glock in that class. You can run some XD45 in that class, but everybody's got seven rounds. So your 1911 is the the winner of that class by far. Sure. Everybody... Some of the top-level shooters are shooting 1911s. Some of them are shooting Glocks. And then there's where the Glock falls in is just the stock service pistol, and everybody has to download your magazines to 10 rounds. That's all you get. It makes you, makes everybody on an even plane. doesn't matter what caliber you shoot. That's all on you. If you want to shoot a 9mm or up, have fun, but you're all in the same class. 
There's a revolver class. So if you're shooting, a, uh, if you want to shoot your revolver, six six shooter. Oh, that's cool. You're, you, that's who you. I mean, that's who you're going to compete against is the six shooters. There's always an overall winner, and then there's an each class winner. So then you kind of. It, it's really cool because you can. You're shooting with all these guys that have all these different guns. So there might be three 1911 shooters, two revolver shooters, three guys with Glocks, and then like four guys with XDs or something. And you're all shooting together. You all get to look at your times and how you sh- how you shoot and how you score and how much fun you have. But then when it comes down to the paper, you're actually just shooting against those guys that are in stock service pistol, which is nine millimeter to 45 Glock style, ten rounds in the magazine. That's it. So you got the stock service pistol, you got revolver, you got the custom defense handgun, which is like the, the 1911 world. What's the fourth one? Uh, the enhanced service pistol. Okay. Which means you can do some things to your gun. Okay. So you can have a nine uh, a nine millimeter 1911 that holds ten rounds. You can add uh, adjustable sights to your Glock, but it's really for those guys that are shooting like a nine millimeter 1911 or a 40 1911. Okay. It's kind of a weird ball category, but they wanted to keep everybody kind of that even playing field, so they made it. Okay. And there's, there's a bunch of different rules where you fall in, but it really, if you want to go shoot it, just take whatever gun you have as a defensive pistol, a holster that's concealable, or if you're a police officer or in the military, duty holsters are acceptable, and just go out there and shoot it. Everybody what is your opinion on I mean, I think people should be trying to, to shoot the closest thing to what they would likely be carrying in a real world scenario. Yeah. There's a, there's some guys that are, when you get up in there, there's the gamers that are shooting at like a Glock 34 or the XD 5.25, which is the five and a quarter inch slide. So you get that long sight radius and you can get a little bit more muzzle velocity for a little bit less recoil. And they, they start gaming it real big, but a lot of shooters are just like me. I carry a Glock 19. That's what I take out there to shoot all the time. Hmm. And in my go bag, my Glock 19 is sitting in a Phobos holster. So the Phobos holster is the one I use to shoot competition. So it's really, I just, I, I'll go to the competition with an extra bag full of ammo, and I just pull my gun and magazines out of my go bag, along with the holster that's in there and the magazine pouch, and that's exactly how I shoot the match. I think that's awesome, and I think that's, that, I mean, I think that's, it sounds like it's kind of what the whole dadgone thing was set up to be in the first place. It is, but there's a lot of things that you can fake on, and there's a lot of things that you learn as you go. Um, you can use barricades as as support when you're shooting longer shots, which you would probably never want to do in the real world. You always want to be back from cover. And then you get to co- see kind of cool stuff. And I was laughing at a guy last two weeks ago I went to a competition, and he's shooting around two 55-gallon plastic drums set up. Yeah. And he's shooting right, almost leaning his gun against it. And he actually, under recoil, leaned his Glock against the barrel. And as the slide went home to chamber a new round, it hit the barrel and caused his gun to malfunction. Huh. Kind of things that you would, how would you ever think that that would happen? I'm an You would never person. learn that. Yeah. I mean, unless you actually went out and did it, you would never learn that. Would you ever think that you would do that, shooting next to a barricade, that under recoil, your gun would move a little bit, and it would be just enough to touch the barricade, and it would cause a malfunction? Really funny things happen, and you kind of laugh at everybody. I mean, the worst mm-hmm. I've ever had is on a – I had a really bad double feed, and then I finally cleared it in my Glock. The only malfunction I've ever had in my Glock was on the range under a timer. And then it got worse because I pulled my new magazine out, shoved it in there with the slide lock back, hit the slide release, 
And for some reason, as I hit the slider release, I saw the round pop out, the first round out of the magazine, pop yeah. and roll around backwards. Oh, great. Release the magazine. And so I tried to chamber around backwards in my gun. And it's all under the clock. And uh, it's another thing that about the IDPA is there's like no do-overs. Unless your gun breaks and physically will not work, there's no do-overs. Hmm. So if you screw up and you misload your magazines, I guess you don't have enough ammo to finish it. Or if you have a malfunction like I did, you have to clear your malfunction under the clock and keep going. Well, in a real-world scenario where there's an active shooter, it's not like you can go, oh, could you please wait a second? Um, I didn't load my magazine right, and it's not fair. So can I please have a moment to get ready to go back into the fight? Uh, it's, it's a completely unrealistic concept, so... It's it, it it probably makes since there's a consequence and it's not you know nobody comes to your house and punches you in the face or anything but there is a consequence the, the match is blown so to speak yeah, you, and no one and no one likes to lose for that kind of reason it's it's got to stick with you a little bit more yeah it does and I mean I, that malfunction under the clock I'll probably never forget it as long as I live uh, one it's the only one I had on my Glock and I'm not sure if it was the gun's fault or the magazine or the operator but. It was just funny that it all happened. It was a calamity of things that just kept happening. It was a piece of brass that was, I think, I don't think the gun did it. I think it came from the factory, peeled back, and I didn't see it, so it got jammed in there. And then when I cleared that, I had to bang it against my arm to get it to clear. And then when I put the next magazine in there, somehow I got a double feed. And then I put the other magazine in there, and the round popped out and was looking at me. To finish the stage, I literally had to, I shot all the ammo I had on me. I had to run back where I dropped one of the magazines in the dirt full of ammo, pick it up put it in the gun, and finish the last two targets. So but that's what you would have to do. Yeah, in a real scenario, that's... Uh, that's what no, you would have to... You're out of ammo, but there's some laying over there. you got to get to the ammo and use it. Otherwise, you have what I always say, and, you know, if you have a gun without ammo, you have a really expensive club. Uh, nowadays, with some of the Glocks and the M&Ps, they're so light, I don't even think they classify as a club. <laughs> they're like upwear. So... You might really be in trouble. So carry yeah, enough ammo. You can't beat somebody with the dadgum gun anymore. You know, <laughs> at least with your old 1911, it's a steel frame and a 40 ounces. Yeah, you can beat you, somebody I, with it, and it still hurts. <laughs> you know, I, I, and that is kind of my preferred handgun, and I think it's just because I shot one since I was like nine years old, and that's what I think you just become uh very confident in a certain frame and you get a lot of feel for it and uh yeah they would give you a good knock on the noggin at least you could pistol whip somebody <laughs> pretty daggone good you pistol whip them with an xd or something they look at you and go excuse me yeah that was that didn't really hurt <laughs> you mentioned that like some survival guys will show up and stuff like that so like one of the questions i always get from people is how do i find people in my area that Right, and you fill the blank in however they want to complete that that statement. But it sounds to me like if you want people that are gun people, preparedness-minded people, uh, self-reliant people, and you go to IDPA, then there's going to be people like that there. Yeah, there there really is. One guy used to bring an old, uh, I think it was an Australian Jeep, military like 1960s Jeep that he had, and it was all decked out for preparedness and everything, and he had everything set up for water and food in it. It was just fun to go through that. He used to show up once every couple months. I used to sit in his truck just for fun because it was really neat. So it was fun to meet him. I still talk to him every once in a while. He actually gave me a job for a while. So you meet all these great people. Um, last week I was out there and our SO was a cop from the local 
uh, local PD and he was a SWAT officer and stuff. And just like the best of the best cops show up, the best of the best military guys show up. There's always three or four vets there. And there's always a couple guys that are still active in the military, especially here in San Antonio where we live. It's, it's military city USA. So there's always a couple active duty military guys that are out there on their own dime with their own guns, just training some more and having some fun. I just, yeah, yeah, I can't say enough about the people that I met there. There's, there's other competitions that I've shot, like a Steel Challenge and USPSA. The people were cool, but just not as, it wasn't as cool. IDPA was the place that I found all these great people. It just really is the place to be. If you want to find great people that are like you, that like guns, that are into survival stuff, it's really right up the audience's niche. You'll find people that are exactly like you there. We even have uh, one of the guys that shoots the club now is a minister. That's what he does for a living. He's a pastor at one of the local churches, and he's out there every other Sunday shooting or every other Saturday. Sunday he's working, but Saturday he's out there shooting. So it's fun to meet him, too. No, it's the kind of church I'd want to go to, too. We had that unfortunate uh, church shooting uh, quite a few years ago in uh, in Fort Worth. And, uh, you know, you say, why would a pastor need a gun? Well, there you go, uh, sad as it is. And uh, it, it's, it, it seems like these skills that people are able to develop here are, are designed for those real-world horrific scenarios. And that's, I think, what people need to come into touch with, is that you can have a lot of fun training this way, but we are training for the worst-case worst, worst case scenario. Yeah, and it's, it's some of the most fun you'll have for, I think my logo range right now is $25 to shoot for the day, to shoot mm. the match, shoot 100 rounds on six different stages for $25, and 100 rounds, is really, you're not going to find better training or more fun. A lot of these courses, I mean, they're, they're a lot of money. They yeah. want thousands of dollars a day to do some of these courses. So it's kind of, and they, not only that, they'll say, well, it, our, my course is a week long. It's only $2,000, but you have an ammo allotment of 750 rounds. That's a lot of money, dude. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, yeah. so it's really the best training you'll get for the, the best bang for the buck. And then you get to meet these really incredible people. And I just keep meeting more and more people and they, they become friends. So, I do cool. think more. Yeah, you said there's some. You find the best of the best cops out there, and that stands to reason because they're making a personal investment in their 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 skills. Because I have found that there's a lot of cops that yeah, you know, just put it this way, they can't shoot worth a damn. My my <laughs> brother-in-law is a police officer, and he used to be on the tag team. Like he's a smaller department, so it's not quite big enough to have a true SWAT unit, but they were you know big enough to have a tactical team. And uh, I figured, he's, this guy's got to be pretty good because they did all this training and stuff. But they did what training, you know, the department paid for. And the first time I shot with him, I was like, I didn't want to say nothing. But I'm thinking, this guy can't shoot. You know? <laughs> yeah, you start He's not drinking. terrible, but, you know, we, you know, when it comes to accuracy and, and follow-up shots and, and being able to do anything other than, you know, the, the, the TV cop stance – um, it, it, it just seemed like there was a lot of lacking there. Yeah. And cops are, uh, somebody did a study a long time ago and cops are just like the normal population. You really have the same number of gun people in the normal population as you do in the police population. Cause they're straight from the citizens. So you can think of, you know, every one in 10 people out in the real world is probably an actual shooter who has done training and actually practices. It's probably about the same for police officers. The other ones, it's just, it's part of their it's like a carpenter and his hammer. It's just something that you use at work every day. Sure. 
Sure. So how do people get started? I mean, how do you find a club in your area? You know, are there a lot, you know, is it likely that there'll be a club in most areas? There is like a club at every range out there. And it's really cool. You can go to IDPA.com and they have their official list of all the clubs that do matches. And they have a list of who shoots when, which is kind of cool. But the best way and the way I learned it, it was just going to my local indoor range I started shooting, started talking to one of the guys that was a safety officer there, and he goes, yeah, you shoot pretty good. Have you ever shot this? And it was kind of, that's how I got started in Texas when I came out here. Was I used to live in California, and when I came out here, I didn't know where to shoot anything, so I just found a local indoor range so I could get some practice time in. And one of the guys told me about Texas Tactical that shoots in Austin and San Antonio, and next thing you know, I'm out there, and I've been doing it for years now. It's just a blast. So all you have to do is go to your local range or even your local gun shop, and those guys will know where the local matches are, how far, and which ones are the best ones too, because they've probably all shot. They probably shot them all. Like me, I've shot probably every club down here in San Antonio area, and I I think Texas Tactical is the best. So they'll be able to tell you that, and they'll be able to tell you why. Well, this this club does this or this one does that. They only do three stages, and they'll do six stages. So you should go out there. It's more fun. Oh, gotcha. And, you know, you're not wrong that it's likely to be anywhere you're at. Hot Springs is not a big place. Um, I think the population of this town is like 40,000 people, and there's not a lot of anything close to that size <laughs> around it. And I just jumped over to IDPA.com and went to the range of listings, and there's one right here in Hot Springs uh, that does it. So odds are there's probably one near just about anybody. Yeah, but I haven't... I haven't seen one where there's not within driving distance. And if you have to drive, it's worth the day trip out there just to see what your skills are and have fun. It's a blast. You'll learn a lot of things. Um, if you think you're a super duper excellent shooter and you haven't done a lot of courses, you'll find out that you're not such super duper course shooter because there are some guys that'll just, there's some guys that show up at these local matches that are just freaking incredible. And you wonder what their training budget is. They got to be shooting a, thousand rounds a month to be that good and you're like what the heck how much do you do this and then you yeah there are guys i've seen that shoot and it's almost like a supernatural level like it doesn't even seem like they should be able to to uh to to function the weapon as quickly as they do (laughs) um so what i've seen that's really kind of a different subject but uh, some real phenomenal shooters are out of japan and and it's like almost impossible to own a gun there so these guys shoot with uh with air 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 uh, air pistols, and, and some of those guys are. I mean, they, sure they're not dealing with the level of recoil, but still, you just look at that and go, "Oh my God, how does a guy move like that?" Yeah, how do you shoot like that too? I see some of these guys, the the top level, like Rod Rod Bleatham is probably my favorite shooter right now, and he is just like he's just incredible to watch him move. How do you move your hands that fast to get the gun out of the holster? How do you reload that fast? On my best day, I couldn't catch him on his worst day. And it's like, I practiced for hours and hours and hours on just reloads. How, how did you do that? And we're talking guys like uh, Jerry Micklick, who's one of the top revolver shooters. He has shot six six rounds, reloaded, shot six rounds in like 2.9 seconds on a target it, with a revolver. And you're like, how did you do that? It just it's just incredible. These guys will come I've out of the whole I've seen him on YouTube now that you say that. The, yeah, that guy is, you know, the, the control is, is unbelievable, let alone the speed. Um, 
I know exactly who you're talking about, the revolver guy, because he's got like a world record for that or something. Yeah, if you just look at world record revolver shooter, he'll come up, and he's probably arguably one of the best revolver shooters that's ever lived. And I'm almost hands down the guy that's always, if he's, I mean, if he showed up to the competition, I'd just say, well, he's going to win. So <laughs> I'm going to shoot a different class. Yeah, or shoot <laughs> a different class. You know, uh, yeah, I mean, that. I, I remember seeing that video, and when he fires those shots, you can't even actually hear every shot. No, he's so... The, the shots are so close together that, 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 they, that you lose the count on the shot. Yeah, and he can do like tenth of second, tenth of a second or less splits and reloads in less than a second flat, and it's just like things that you... You know, to give you the uh, normal, like an average draw for a police officer and the standard that I had to make when I was trying to be a police officer was a second and a half out of the holster to first shot. These guys will do it in three quarters of a second. Just incredible. And then a reload was two and a half seconds. These guys will do a reload in under a half second flat. Split times that are talking about eh, four tenths of a second are pretty good. These guys are doing one-tenth of a second splits. They can run the gun pretty much as fast as the dang thing will cycle. And for those that, that may not be familiar with some of the jargon there, split time is the time in between shots, correct? Yes. I'm sorry. No, that's fine. Yeah, fine. There's a culture time. everywhere, and there's, you know, when you have a culture, <laughs> you have your own language. Oh, yeah. and that's that's, that's kind of cool that, you know, maybe people that would go the first time now know what that means before they even show up. Um, I guess the other thing is, like, it seems like you can get really into this to a point where, like, you know, you say you're practicing every day and, and you, you know, you have equipment that you're making sure is ready to go at all times. But it also sounds like the more casual shooter that just wants to show up and shoot some matches and isn't even really concerned with winning. They're really just shooting against themselves and trying to get better. There's just as much room for that person as the person that wants to be a world-class shooter. Yeah, and it's perfect for you if you want to go out there and shoot a match and see where you are and then go to a shooting con- or go to a, a class and then come back and see how much you've improved. You can see a market improvement. And then the, the people that come in and go out is almost constant at your local club. So really, you know, if I go out and I shoot and I just started and I place right in the middle 50% of my class, and then the next time I go out and I practice a bunch and I place in the top 40%, now you can actually see on paper that I have improved as a shooter. And I think you'd know it yourself, too, because who knows, maybe all the really good guys showed up that day, you yeah. know, and well, you're a new shooter. But, you know, um, you probably are going to really feel the difference yourself as you as you get more comfortable. Yeah. And you you can tell yourself, too, which stages and you'll start learning how to call your shots and all these things that we're supposed to do as shooters. You'll actually learn how to do them and how fast you're moving. And it. You and it makes some stress on you too. It's kind of funny. One of the instructors, an old Marine Corps retired colonel, says that every time that buzzer goes off to start, you have a frontal lobotomy because you just forget everything. <laughs> and it's kind of it, it's kind of fun. It gives you some stress, and it, it's not a lot of stress. Nobody's shooting at you, but you know everybody's laughing at you if you do something dumb. So it gives gotcha. you that stress level, and it teaches you how to deal with it. Teaches you how to calm down and make that long shot at 25 yards, even though you just ran. 10 yards and shot three other targets. So those are kind of the, those are kind of the things that I learned is the gun handling skills and then kind of the things that can go wrong. Also the equipment is really cool too. You'll find if you go out there and you start shooting, you'll find what equipment works and what doesn't. If you're buying aftermarket magazines, you'll find out which company is good and which company is not. You'll find out which gun is going to malfunction or not. If you have, if you go out and buy a, 
a high point, you'll find out that that's probably not going to work at all when you start <laughs> running the gun hard. Yeah. I agree with that one. Not to mention just the, the reloading of those things. Their magazines is, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't hate high point. I just don't see them as anything other than like this thing that you have to play with once in a while. Um, I wouldn't trust my life to it unless it was the only thing I can afford, and then it's better than a sharp stick. And you, if you ever have to beat somebody to death with a gun, you can you can do that. <laughs> uh, they, especially like that that uh, their 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 their, for, their their frame for that forty is like a beast. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I, I could definitely see how that would. Work. Now I've got a question just because you're talking about aftermarket magazines, and this totally off the subject, but just based on your background, I'd like to hear your opinion of this, or even if you've heard that this has just happened. The U.S. government, in their infinite wisdom, has come out and now stated that all of our soldiers that are over in these foreign theaters are no longer permitted to use any magazines for their you know, M4s and, and similar weapons other than the, the standard issue USGI mags. Uh, so that means like Magpul is out, which to me is the most reliable thing I've ever, you know, I know it's not a pistol or whatever, but have you, have you heard that and what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I've read that on the blogosphere and without trying to sound conspiracy theory, it's all about the money, follow sure. the money. And that's the whole decision. And then it's a control item is that the army has their special think tank and it's T-A-C-O-M, TACCOM, I think is the acronym. But they're their think tank to come up with the stuff. And the think tank sat up down in like 2010 and said, well, we're going to design a better magazine. They yeah. couldn't. They they just came up with an improved follower for the magazine that they have already. And they spent all this money. And it's been, I think that was 2010 they sat down. So it's been two years that these guys have been working on this. And they've been getting paid for it. And all this money has been funneled into this project. Yeah, and well, all their buddies work for the companies that actually build them. Yeah, and then even not the company that builds them, the pride gets in the way too. I've worked on this two years, and what are you going to yeah. tell me that P, you know, that Magpul came up with something better? Well, until like, you can run over your so, freaking USGI mag with a deuce and a half and and put it in the gun and have it run, yeah. Um, yeah. I could, or I don't know if you saw the thing on where James Yeager had a training going on in one of their live fire trainings, and somebody's mag got left behind, and mag got shot. Yeah, that was pretty funny. They taped it up and it actually taped it up and it ran. You know, so when when you guys can make a metal, you know, your USGI metal mag, do that. Then we can talk. I I, I think a lot of guys are still going to be carrying the P mags, especially the guys that are in the shit, so to speak. Yeah, and then it comes to what your unit does too. When I was over there in Iraq the first time in '03, nobody cared. We did whatever we wanted, and people were strapping all sorts of stuff to their gun. Nobody cared. And then I went over there in 08 as a private contractor, and I was working for the Army. And man, they wanted everything uniform. This unit said you're not gonna, you're not gonna carry your optic. You're gonna have your optic on this part of the rail mount. I don't want to see it one forward. I want to see your broomstick right here. Their gear was all the same. I was like, really, we're going into combat, and you're worried about whether his front grip is on number 12 instead of number 13? Who cares? So yeah. it's a lot to do with the unit. I think a lot of the units that are more into it will be like, yeah, okay, we didn't see anything. <laughs> yeah, I, I think especially like your special operations units and all are going to be like, well, that's nice for everybody else. Oh, the spec yeah. office, they don't care. They the don't, Army they, puts they, out whatever, <laughs> and so does, I mean, the Marine Corps has a special operations command now, and you know, yeah, go ahead. Tell the Navy SEAL he's not going to carry that magazine and see what happens with that group. And, you know, and those guys are so like, 
well, we're going to carry it anyways. And they, well, we'll court martial all of you. Well, that's fine. We're not going on any missions. We're going to go have a beer. Yeah. (laughs) And they'll just stop operations. I mean, these guys are, they really are the best of the best, all those guys, the SEALs. Well, and my thing would be, you go take it away from them. Oh, yeah, that's the other one. Yeah, units that you're not (laughs) I'm not doing it. Oh, and they had some, when I was over there in 2008, we always knew the SEAL unit was on base because they had a, a minigun on top of one of the Hummers. So, yeah, go ahead. They're the only ones in theater with a minigun on a Humvee. So go ahead. Take their stuff. See what happens. Yeah. So I think it's all about the money, and then it's it about, about control. And then yeah. on the other half, too, I mean, USGI magazines, they're really not that bad. I think they got a bad rap, kind of like the M4 gets a bad rap for being reliable. Sure. When they get old and used, they've been stepped on. They've been laid on. You know, the guy carries them in their kit for a year and a half, and he's – running around he's getting in and out of vehicles they get bumped they get dinged he lays on them they get bent those spot welds get bad and that's really where i've had a problem with them is that that spot weld on the back of the mag will wear out and i've actually melted a magazine in an m4 so uh yeah that's your problem with those mags is when they come yeah. brand new as long as they're not dented or dinged or somebody didn't step on the box but and use the, the real box, world, all that crap happens and i mean like i mean I put PMAX to the test because I didn't, you know, I thought when I first saw the guy drive the truck over it, (laughs) I thought he was full. You know, you can fake anything. Yeah. Well, I I pulled my F-350 up on top of one, and I spun it out in the gravel, and I shot it about 25 yards into the woods. It took me and the dog. I had the dog helping me. It took us a while to find it, and it was was nothing wrong with it. Um, and you know, if you, I can just pull up on one of those metal mags, and it's just, it's a better product. I don't want to turn the whole end of the show into that. But I just wanted your opinion as a guy that's been there, done that type of thing. I've had, and it's a lot of it's the money and the pride is I think is the thing we had in the Marine Corps. We were issued this new high fangled Molly system in 2000. And then we had it for a year and we were one of the first test beds. And then in 2002, Afghanistan kicked off and they found these stupid packs don't last. And then it was funny. I'm sitting there as a little corporal and out comes this first sergeant and he starts walking around and he starts talking to us, well, how do you like that pack, Marines and stuff? And I'm standing around with all the older Marines, and the one guy looks at him, and he goes, honestly, I had to trash can it and go back to an old Alice pack because we kept breaking the stupid things. And I'm like, yeah, uh, first sergeant, it's a piece of junk. We break them all the time. We can't sit on them. You can't drop yeah. them out of a vehicle. And even the plastic frame would break if you put it on your back and you pull the straps tight enough and flex. The Marines would break the pack just in a sure. hike. So it was really a piece of junk, and I think, I hope the Army has improved them. They're using the same looking frame, but I'm assuming they have improved them in the last 10 years. Hopefully. So uh, we're telling this first sergeant that they're a complete piece of trash. All of us are buying out of our own pocket Blackhawk stuff and everything else just because we need gear that works. And he looks at us and he goes, no, it's a good pack. I was on the team that helped design them. And the problem with these... The guys in Afghanistan is the pack is only designed to carry 75 pounds, and they're overloading yeah. them and breaking them. I looked him square in the eyes as a little corporal, and I go, well, First Sergeant, if they're putting over 75 pounds in their pack, that means they need over 75 pounds. We need a piece of gear that will keep up with our Marines. He yeah, because nobody's carrying a 100-pound pack because they like to. Oh, yeah, we didn't. Yeah, no way. <laughs> yeah. He's like, you know, this is so light, and I'm going to be being shot at and everything, and it just isn't giving me the workout I'm looking for. Um, so maybe I should, you know, <laughs> just put a couple bricks in here. Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, come on. Um, so yeah, it's and kinda... it's nothing new. It, it, the, the whole methodology is nothing new. If you go all the way back to like right after World War One, 
Um, we had the 1903 Springfield and we had the 1917 Enfield, both in 3006. And they weren't quite ready to move into the world of semi-autos and the M1 Garand yet and all. So they had to make this decision. You know, they had this, this Springfield and then they couldn't keep up production for the war. So they brought the Enfield in because they were making it for the British. And they just said, we can make this in, in, in you know, the same caliber. So they have them both sitting there and they're going to make a decision. And somebody decided because the Enfield cocked on close and the Springfield cocked on open that the Springfield was more reliable. <laughs> Yet no testing was actually done. It was just because the, the, the guy that made the decision preferred that it cock on open versus close. And, and it ended up being that the Enfield was a more reliable weapon. It's, but, yeah. you know, and it, 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 that one didn't really matter because by the time there was another war, those were pretty much mothballed at that point. <laughs> but that, so if that was going on in 1919... And it's still going on today. That's kind of a systemic thing, but let's not kick that dead horse anywhere that we have to. <laughs> you, you do have a website, right? Yeah, I have a website where I blog daily about self-defense, and I throw in some firearm stuff and then some stuff related to when I was overseas. I just did a, a couple articles on using night vision and which ones I've used and how they work. And it, But mostly it's about self-defense, and mostly it's about keeping yourself safe by avoiding problems instead of, you know, do this whiz bang, super cool move, karate chop to get out of it when this guy attacks you. <laughs> it's better to not be there when the guy's going to start punching you. Just leave first, and then you win all together. So there's a lot of cool stuff there. I'm really proud of it. I've been working a long time, and uh, thanks to you for that. By the way, I listened to your five minutes with Jack show, and that really got me motivated to do blog every day. Awesome, awesome. Well, and what is the name of your site so people can actually get there? That would be helpful, huh? Look at that. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, modernselfprotection.com, www.modernselfprotection.com. Awesome, and I'll include links uh, to, to your site and the other stuff that you uh, sent me in your uh, notes and the show notes for people so they can uh, hook up with you. And uh, I know you got Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, all that good stuff there. Uh, not YouTube, you got Facebook and Twitter on there, so uh, I'll make sure there's links so that everybody can find you. Cool. I really appreciate that, and I, I really appreciate all your listeners, and uh, your community is so great. I'm on the forums as expat Ben. I don't post a lot, but uh, I read it. I, I guess I troll it a lot. I'm starting a garden and stuff, so every time I have a question, the first place I go is to the forum and use that search function, find out what's going on. I'm like, oh, I want to do this bed. You know, what have people done? And I read all this stuff on your forum and figure out, oh, okay, here's how you start a, a raised bed and some of the stuff I've done. It's straight off of your forum. So thanks to all those guys out there on the forum and all those guys out there that listen. I'm, I've learned so much in the last couple of years listening to your show. Well, and, you know, the community is awesome, and uh, they do bring a lot to the table. And thank you for being part of it, and thank you for joining us today on the show. No, I'm honored to be part of your community, and uh, to be on the show is just great. I, it, it, I'm beside myself happy just having a great time talking to you. All right, folks, and with that, this is Jack Spirico today, along with Ben Branham, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.